Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Women in the Wilderness, Four Narratives of Spiritual Power with Dr. Aviva Zornberg is presented by the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series 5780. All four lectures can be found at elmod.pardes.org. For other digital content, please visit us online. Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are continuing with our series on women in the wilderness, and we have a very different menu tonight. <coughs> Last week, we spoke, about, we spoke about a woman who knows what it is to be inspired by God, a prophetess, Miriam. And we spoke about the complications of her personal life in the context of her prophetic life. We talked about sexuality and prophecy, the connection between the brother and sister, great ecstasy and great envy between brother and sister. And tonight we're going to talk about simply talking, speaking. Not an altered state of any kind, simply at the heart of it, it's a story of five sisters, five daughters of a man called Slovchad who come to plead a case, they lay claim to a certain right, which they think should be the case, and, the, and that is that their father, who didn't leave any sons, should be able to have left his, his territory, his land, in the Holy Land, in Eretz Yisrael, to his daughters. And they succeed in their case. And all they do, of course, is speak, and we'll see how that, how, how that works out. Uh, and in the end, God compliments them, not only agrees with their legal claim, but he actually compliments them. It's almost the more important aspect of what God says. Ken benot Slovchad dovrot. The daughters of Slovchad speak rightly. They speak, and I want to spend some time on that word ken, that simple word ken, which doesn't mean yes exactly in the biblical text. We have now, that's one of our colloquial applications of the word ken, which turns out to have a very rich etymology. It, 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 it has a, a lot of associations. What does God mean by saying that? First of all, he probably means they're correct. They're correct in their legal evaluation of the situation, um, and the law will be like as they, as they have spoken. But beyond that, I want to say that what God is really saying is that at last, after many years in a wilderness, in a midbar, in which the people have been industriously engaged in misspeaking, they, what they've been doing from the beginning is speaking against God and against Moshe. Debru belokim uve Moshe. They're against the bet of, of adversary position, what we talked about last week. So the people have been busy speaking in ways that anger God, that anger Moshe. Whatever they've said, it hasn't been very, I'll use the word, felicitous. And that's not just because I want to stun you with a, with a long word, but because it's going to be very useful to us this evening. Um, infelicitous speech. And finally, someone is speaking Ken. And that's not Slovchad. It so happens, but it's not Slovchad. And what they have said is really quite minimal. 
you, if you pare down the scene, I'm going to read the scene to you now. It would be better if you had it in front of you, but if you don't have a chumash, uh, I think you'll be able to follow. You will see that most of what I'm telling is a narrative and not the actual legal claim. The legal claim has its place in a larger narrative, and we are, for some reason, the Torah takes the trouble to tell us this whole context in which these five daughters, these five sisters, make their claim. So it it's chapter 27 in uh, Sefer Bamidbar. And the daughters of Slovchad came close. That's the first word of the, they approached. Now, vitikravna can mean sometimes to offer sacrifice. Uh, to come, come into the position of sacrifice. It can mean to approach, or it can mean to encroach. It means to, can mean to come too close. Nadavandavihu came close. That's the word that's used of them several times. And they were burned. Right? They, they got cl too close to the fire. So it's a dangerous move that Benotzlov had in the context of, of the Torah. It's a dangerous move that they are undertaking here in coming close. But before we get to hear who they came close to and what they came close for, what we hear is their whole genealogy. Slofchad was the son of Hefer, the son of Gilad, the son of Machir, the son of Menashe, of the family of Menashe, the son of Yosef. So now you know the whole genealogy, the whole Yichus, all the patriarchy. Right? It's clearly, you know, I'm not using the word lightly now, it's perfectly plain. It's a patriarchal chain that goes back to Yosef. And there are five names there. It's all very carefully thought out. It's a literary text. It's not just a historical text. Five names, and these are the names then of his daughters. So all the names we get now in one, in one pasuk. Machla, Noah, Vachogla, Umilka, Vatirza. Five names. So five daughters and their, their, their heraldic background where they come from, which is five male names that go back to Menashe. And they came close, that next, the next verse, Vata'amodna, and they stood in the presence of Moshe, and in the presence of Elazar the priest, and in the presence of the, of the princes and of the whole community, male. Kol Ha'ida is a way of talking about it. It's the sign of a minyan. You know, so in, in these five women, you have to imagine the scene. You know, without any particular overtones to what I'm saying. You know, I'm not, I have no particular axis to grind. Just to notice what's being narrated here. There are these, all we know about them is that they're, they're the daughters of someone who is the son of the son of the son of. And they come and they stand in front of all the dignitaries and the, the, uh, the official community at the entrance to the tent of assembly in the, in the place where important things are decided. A sacred place. And this is what they say. We don't, all it says is lay more, as if it doesn't actually say they said. But their whole posture was they came close and they stood there. There's a certain posture, I want to say, with which they stand there, which says, you know, and then it gets translated into words lay more. And what is the actual speech they make? <clears throat> Our father died in the wilderness. And he was not one of the, that community who conspired against God, the community of Korach. So they take the trouble to say right away, as if they're anxious about this, uh, don't think he was one of that sinning community that, uh, that deserved punishment. He just died, how is it described here, rather hauntingly? Um, he 
He died of his own sin. And we're not told, we're not privy to what sin it might have been. Uh, the, the Midrash has, has its, has its uh, speculations, but, but that's all we know. It's a private matter, his death. It's a private matter to us. It says nothing that you, Moshe, should resent him for. I think in that sense it's a political note. They're striking, if you see what I mean, that they are aware that if Moshe thought that they were in any way, that, his father, that the father was in any way involved with Korach, he would take that, the family, as an adversary to his own position, because Korach was the competitor who rose up personally against Moshe. Um, but he didn't leave sons. That's the, that's, the, that's the main situation now. Why? Lama yigara shem avinu mitoch mishpachto. Why should the name of our father be diminished in the midst of his family, from the midst of his family? Why should it shrink and vanish, as it were, in the midst of his family, in the midst of things, inside things? Here we have, a, we have life, we're in the midst of life. Why should our father vanish from, from life, from, from eternal life? Ki en lo ben, just because he doesn't have a son, give us, tna lanu achuza betoch ache avinu. Give us a possession, land, again, in the midst of the brothers of our father. So there is a society here, and it is the rights of their father that they're speaking for. The rights of their father are in danger of just simply vanishing like the snow in, in, in the wilderness. They're not pleading for themselves. Now, of course, of course, they're pleading within the patriarchal system, and they're pleading in a situation where it's men who inherit. That's a kind of convention. It's understood. Although there are, there are statements in the Talmud that say that when God delivers his judgment in the end, what gets clarified is that, in fact, by law, it's sons that inherit. That is, that was never clear. It had never been stated till now. That is, they achieve a kind of bittersweet victory. That on the one hand, if there are no sons, the daughters will inherit. But if there are sons, then the sons will inherit. That gets underlined by their case, by what they bring to light through, through their case. And so what they're asking for is for their father, and they ask for it rather demandingly. Tanalanu. if you look through, uh, look in a concordance, um, as I did, tanalanu basar, tanalanu melech, tanalanu zera, tanalanu zera, um, and so on and so on. Every, give us this girl for marriage. In other words, these are essential existential needs. When someone really needs food and water and land to live on and a girl to marry and, and so on, they say, as if there's no question, this is what I need. And they use that rather strong language here, without, without too much in the way of, of placation. And that's the end of the speech. That's the end of the speech. And then there's a, a slight frame at the other side. Vayakrev Moshe at Mishpatan Lifnei Hashem. And God then brought close, the same word, yeah, their case into the presence of God. Right. So God, uh, uh, we're not given any explanations. Why did Moshe, did I read that right? No, yeah. no you said God brought. Yeah, yeah. Moshe, I thought someone was looking startled. <laughs> Moshe brought their case into the presence of God, <coughs> and we're not told why. And then God answers Moshe, and he says to him, Ken, benot dovrat. 
They have spoken well, rightly, correctly. That's the first translation. You shall indeed give them a possession of inheritance in the midst of the brothers of their father. The brothers of their father, right. Yes, uh, and so on and so on. We'll look a little more later at, at what God says. Um, meantime, this is what we're concentrating on. And the first thing I want to say is that if this is a feminist game, as it has the reputation of being, that this is kind of the fem feminist moment uh, in the Torah, it's a rather limited game. Yes. I don't think there is terribly much to be excited about here, that women have gained the right to inherit where there are no sons. They use a purely legalistic uh, argument, according to the Talmud. We'll come across it in a minute when we look at Rashi, which is a purely rational argu argument. Are we Zerah or are we not Zerah? Right? They put it in Talmudic terms, as it were, and they say, are we the seed of our father or are we not? The seed inherits. If there are no brothers, then if we do count as seed, we should inherit. And if we don't, then our mother should do yibum. She should find, you know, another relative to marry to produce proper children if we, we don't count as children. And they don't say it ironically or sarcastically that, you know, we don't count as Zerah. They ask it, as it were, as a technical question. They put it very kind of neutral, at least that's the way, I, the way I imagine it. So it's not much of a feminist game. God accedes to the, to the almost, the almost uh, scientific nature uh, of the question. Ken Dovrod. Yep, they're perfectly correct. On that level, we wouldn't have too much to say about it. At least I wouldn't. You know, maybe uh, more learned people here would. Um, but since, if we look at Rashi, we'll see how Rashi really gets, I don't know what the word is, energized. Energized by the word Ken. Ken really interests him. Have a look at number one on your page. Lama, you got starting from the beginning there. I'll go through it quickly. Um, we stand in the place of a son. All right, that part we can leave out because I more or less said it. They say, if there had been son, a son, we wouldn't have demanded anything. This teaches you the end of that first part on, on, on Pasuk Dalet. Magid, shechokmaniot hayu. Teaches you that they were wise women. Now, Chazal, the sages, are rather lavish in their compliments to the daughters of Slavchad. They, they give them three adjectives which are extraordinary adjectives. Chochmaniot, wise. Tzidkaniot, righteous. Notice in that odd feminine plural form with the nun in it. Not tzadikot, not chachamot, but chachmaniot and tzidkaniot. Almost somehow it sounds almost like a profession. You know, so this is, this is, they, they, they are, they are, what's the word I want? Um, <laughs> um, might come back afterwards. In any, the feeling somewhere, we're not just talking about a couple of women here. We're talking somewhere about something serious that they have. They have chokhmah, they have tzidkut, and the third one is really unexpected, darshaniyot. They are people who know how to give a drasha. I don't want to put it down quite as much as that. Let me just say, I don't think it's a, it's a put down at all. They are women who know to how to talk in Torah Shabbat Peh. They know, they know how to make a claim, not purely on hard legal grounds, using associations, using imagination, achieving something in a different realm from simply the technical realm. So they are darshaniyot. Whoever called women darshaniyot 
seriously till today, you know, till, till our day. You know, there never was such a thing as a woman Darshanit. I don't know, as far as I know, you know, there's, there's, there's the maid of Lublin and there's, a, you know, I, she wasn't exactly a Darshanit. So it's, that, that worked, but that's what Bronislav had are complimented for. And the first of those compliments appears here. And then we go into the, into the Rashi I want to look at with you. Vayakrev Moshe et Mishpatan. Moshe brought their case uh, to God. Nit alma halacha mimenu. Why did he bring it to God? Because the, ke- the halacha, the law, had suddenly disappeared from him. It had vanished from his mind. He forgot it, in a way. Now, that, that's a terrible thing to happen. You know, suddenly, there you are all, you know, ready to give a lecture or to answer a case, and you've forgotten all the material. Suddenly, that particular material that he needed so the implication here is that he did know the answer, that God had in some way given him the answer, and he just forgot it. So it's a kind of crisis in the life of Moshe, that he has the experience of knowing, and then it's mit mimenu. Suddenly it's obscured from him. You know, it's almost like a neutral statement. Uh, there he is left high and dry. And here Moshe was being punished because of a certain hubris, Natal Atara, when he had said you know, a long time before um, to the people, to Yitro, whatever is too hard for your small claims courts, bring to me. And there again is that word takrivun, bring it up to me, bring it close to me. And Moshe had said that perhaps quite just seriously, you know, substantially. If the case is too hard, then bring it, bring it to me. I'm at the apex of the, of the judicial system. But somewhere God hears in that a spot of hubris. Now, whatever's too hard for you, bring to me. And this is Moshe, who is the most humble of all people. Um, humble people also can have unexpected moments, apparently, of, of hubris. Something flashes out. And that's why he's being punished. And that's why he has to pass the case on to God, according to Rashi. Now, he's quoting from many different sources. As we move through this passage, you know, the story, there are at least three different sources that he's quoting. He's moving around. He's collecting. It's a kind of collage. So after that, something else now, another idea. This parsha was worthy to be written through the agency of Moshe, but the daughters of Tzlovchad merited and it was written through their agency instead. Now, what does it mean? What does that mean? Al-Yadan. Really, Moshe was fully qualified to write this whole parsha. In other words, the legal aspect of it, to actually present the law. Moshe knew it very well. And we, we owe this law in the Torah. We would have owed it to Moshe, which would have been the regular thing, that Moshe should be the one who brings that law to, to Bnei Israel. As it turns out, Daughters of Slavchad merited. Somehow they took that away from Moshe. That Moshe should have, but it turns out that they are the ones who are qualified. He, he is, turns out to be less qualified than them. Now, it seems to me that what Rashi is doing here is subtly building up a situation of some tension between Moshe and Benot Slavchad. There is a drama here. It's very, it's, it's touched very lightly. Their gain is his loss. He loses it, and they get it. Now that's, and we'll see there's much more in, the, in, that, in that direction. And so what we have here is not a sterile legal situation. 
It's a human situation. It's a situation in which Moshe, about whom the rumor has already been circulated among those who are prophesying in the camp, that he's about to die and Yahushua is about to take over. In other words, Moshe is already, it's the end of, a, of an epoch, fin de siècle. It's the end of Moshe's effective life. It's coming now. And what happens now? Five women come and know what he doesn't know. They know, and we have the law then through them and not through him. And then again, in the next, in the next uh, passage on Pasuk Zayn, the daughters of Slavchad speak rightly. Ken, ya'ut, translation into Aramaic, ya'eh. Ya'eh, na'eh, yes. It means fitly, right? That's a kind of neutralish word, neutral word. Fit, the idea somewhere of, I want to say, with an aesthetic edge to it. Na'eh, ya'eh, it means harmonious, fitting, in some way, it's not just, oh, they, have, they, they, they reason correctly. It's somehow it fits well into something or other. It's as if they have a sense of, they have a sense of how things ought to be. And that's the, that the Aramaic translation. And then, kach k'tuva parshat Rashi quotes the Midrash that God says, exactly so is this whole episode written in front of me up above in my in my courts above that is i have actually read this claim in my own book i have written it in my own book and it's there in my own book my supernal torah you know the torah up there and they've got it exactly right exactly as if they were reading my book now that's a tremendous compliment to pay benotslofred that they have some kind of sensibility that knows the way things in an ideal world should be, like when translated like that. And God just recognizes it. He says, Ken. Ken, he translates as Kach. Kach means exactly so as I have it written. There's something just perfectly matching, uh, but it matches something or other, um, what, 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 they, what, what, they, what they're saying here. Magid, this tells you, and here again another Midrash, Sanchuman that their eye saw what Moshe's eye didn't see. And again, the emphasis on the visual, that they saw truth, justice, whatever you want to call it, but is the eye seeing what Moshe's eye didn't see. So you can say the eye is used sometimes in issues of, of discrimination and intelligence and so on. The eye is a place of, of wisdom. Nevertheless, I think there is an aesthetic edge to the whole thing. They have a sense of things. And then we go to the last passage here. Ken tavu. And there out there out and out is the word yafe, which we often translate simply as correctly. Yafe. But I don't want to ignore the aesthetic meaning of the word yafe. They they have clay, their claim is and I want to use the word fair. Right? Is that an, is that a fair translation? Because fair can mean both just and beautiful, yes? And that is a, it's an argument, actually, that the American philosopher Elaine Scarry uses in an extraordinary short book called On Beauty, in which she argues that beauty is a philosophical and an ethical value, which is very out of fashion these days. We don't, we don't, beauty is not paid any serious attention in, in the philosophical world. But she makes an argument about how there is something in common, a sense of equal distribution, harmony, a sense of symmetry that you have when something is beautiful. 
And she says, in the absence of justice, if you see something beautiful, it can act as a lever towards justice. I like that expression very much. It means it somehow raises, I know that often Jews, you know, when they're being from, when we're being from, you know, we kind of say that beauty, eh, you know, that's not, that's not a serious concern. Well, I'm not so sure. I think there's, there's an argument made the other way, that, that beauty has an ethical impetus in some way. You see things that are symmetrical and harmonious and are calming in some way. They remind you of a missing value, like justice, where, where things are distribu distributed fairly. Now, that's, that's Elaine Scarry, but he, what she points out is that the word uh, fair, um, in its double meaning, has, has ancestry going back through uh, European languages, um, East European languages, Sanskrit. She gives a whole list of languages in which you get that play on words, you know, of just and beautiful, meaning, meaning in a sense, the same thing. Um, the, uh, I think Aristotle said that the, the philosophically the best, the best object is a cube. A cube is the best object because it's equal on all sides. You know, it's some, it satisfies a certain sense of justice. So I come back here. The beauty of what they see. And then the passage ends, um, at the end, with a kind of uh, ex exclamation from Rashi. Ashrei adam baruch Happy is the person. You know, suddenly there's a, an ecstatic outcry from, from Rashi. Happy is the person to whose words God agrees, with whose words God agrees. That God assents, as if saying, yes, it could have been me speaking. That's yes. And so, in a sense, to convey the feeling I'm gradually trying to create here, um, I think, in a sense, you could say simply that what God says is, Ken, yes. Yes, in that you know, long hissing way, uh, in which you say it when something not so simple, something a bit complicated, comes out just right. It, it come, they have done something extraordinary here. Now, what we have here, I think, beyond what they actually say, is a context. It's a narrative context. Why, dare we, why do we, <laughs> is so much time taken, so much space taken to tell us who, whose daughter they were and the whole ancestry and, and how they came and they, they came close in the feminine plural form, it builds up a sense, first of all, of the courage that's needed to do this thing, to come and make this claim. And secondly, um, not, 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 not only the courage, but the sense of something that has to be done something that they are driven to do in spite of the fact that they are now, you know, they're in the lion's den, you know, they're right there in the heart of everything that in a way is alien to them. And they're there to make a certain kind of appeal, which has to do with chokhmah, which you could take as an appropriately, appropriate appeal, but which turns out, strangely, to be impossible for Moshe to adjudicate. And we saw in Rashi one reason, perhaps, one Rashi explanation, that he simply forgets. Or he's, his eye doesn't see exactly what they sees, see. The Zohar actually says something very interesting. It says that Moshe recuses the case. He passes it on to God. 
because he doesn't want people to think that he might have a possible resentment against that family. That is, in spite of the fact that they reassure him that our father was not, you know, he was not. Nevertheless, maybe Moshe will feel in some way attacked by Benot Slovchad. After all, he's had a whole history of people speaking against him. And now these mere women come, you know, women of all things, and they come and make a very clear and definite, if not to say assertive, uh, claim. And Moshe doesn't want there to be any suspicion that he feels resentful in any way at this situation. And that's why he hands it over to God. So this is Moshe being very scrupulous. It's an interesting suggestion, but it does tell us something about the possible state of Moshe. That maybe if he was being so scrupulous, he was right to be scrupulous. That there is in him a sense of tension. That there's a tension now between himself and Benot Slavchad. And it can't really be acknowledged. And the immediate impact of the tension is that he forgets the law. You know, that, in a way, is a kind of phenomenon that results from this. One more quotation from the Midrash, which I think also takes us a little deeper into this, and that, and that is this. Um, God says to Moshe, not very kindly, I have to say, in, in the Midrash, God says, Hadin nashim danin oto. The law that you don't know, women frame it. Women are, yeah, they're formulating it. Is that just God being sarcastic at Moshe's expense? I think my first reading, I don't know if it's justified or not, is that it is a little bit of a sarcasm at the expense of women. You know, as if to say, look, women are... And in a way, God is rubbing it in, excuse me. Yeah, he's, he's making Moshe feel, feel the situation. And so suddenly we have a more complicated general situation than one might think. In any case, the women are being very clever. They're being very clever because they know, they acknowledge that there is a social aspect to this. There is an emotional aspect to this. And that's why they go to lengths to reassure Moshe that there is no, well, we, our family has no history of hostility uh, to, to, to you. In other words, there's an awareness of forces that there might be in the field. Now, what is a field? I want to say that what they're doing is entering a field. Vatikravna, vata'amodna. Where? In a force field of some kind. So I have a, I have a definition from the Oxford Science Dictionary here. Uh, what is a force field? Uh, it's a way of representing, it's a method of representing the way in which bodies are able to influence each other. What happens, uh, sorry, bodies are able to influence each other. Where uh, a field, uh, the dictionary says, is, is one in which a body experiences a force as a result of the presence of some other body or bodies. Right. So you have a sense of a force is exerted by one person on another. It's not the argument alone. It's who this person is affects somewhere. Affects, and then there's a whole field of forces coming from all sides. And the women know they're walking into something like that. That is, they're not innocent. They don't think they're just going to, you know, type into the computer and get a, it, it's a court of law. And Moshe goes some way to obviating that personal issue by refusing the case, by passing it back to God. 
nevertheless. Have a look now at the next passage, the Midrash, Bemidbar Rebbe, number two. Vatikravna Bnot Slovkad, the daughters of Slovkad came close. Gudula lahen, gudula laavihen. The uh, the list of uh, the list of forebears is greatness to them and greatness to their father, greatness to Machir, greatness to Yosef, that such women, wise and righteous, came out from them. Now, that's very nice. You know, that's 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 there's something very substantial about that. That you give someone's yichus, you give someone's background, usually in order to glory in the background. You know, it's there. You, 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 you're, yes, you get, you get honor from who your parents and your grandparents are. And you might think that's the way it goes only. But the Midrash says, no, it goes both ways. That I'm sure these parents and these grandparents were terribly proud of Benot Slavkat. You know, they were getting nachas at, at, at this point. That there's something about the, the greatness, the posture of Benot Slavkat that, that reflects what, well on the forebears. Now, that's, that's, that's the start of it there. They're wise and they're righteous. What was their wisdom? That they spoke at the right moment with an exquisite sense of timing. What, what does that mean? Because Moshe was just busy discussing the issue of inheritance. You look at the previous passage. And then they came and made their plea. If we are like a son, we should inherit um, as a son, and so on. The same argument as we met before. Miyad, immediately, Moshe brought their case to God. Meaning that they made a timely argument. And timing is very important. That's one of the psychological, political aspects of pleading for the truth. Right? Truth is not an abstraction. That truth takes place in a field of some kind, of expectations and, and mood. And it was just the right moment because that was when Moshe was busy talking about inheritances. And they choose their moment consciously. Lefisha. That's their, that's their wisdom. But now look at the next passage, which forms an interesting contrast. Also says Lefisha, the Yalkochimoni, number three. Elu omdim bedor. Hamidbar. These women rose up in the generation of the wilderness. And they were merited to take the reward of everyone else. That is, they swept the board. You know, they, what, what other people lost, they got. What does that mean? This teaches you at what moment did they speak in front of, did they stand in front of, of Moshe? What was the timing of this, of this speech? It's when Israel were just saying, let's appoint a new leader and return to Egypt. Now, what was that? What story was that? Spies. Spies. When was the spies? At the other end of 40 years. Right? This, is, this is 40 years later, just, just to point it out. But what the, but the Midrash says is that they chose their moment at the time when everyone else wanted to go back to Egypt. What did they say? Uh, 
That was, that was it, the time that they made their, their claim. Moshe, Amar Moshe, Amar Lahen Moshe. Moshe, he protested even. He couldn't understand it. He said, Israel are seeking to return to Egypt. That's all they seem to want. And you seek an inheritance in the land? Now, there's a, a little twist. That suddenly, Moshe is he's totally impressed and baffled. Where are you coming from? The, the fashion is to go back to Egypt. Yeah, and suddenly, here you come, and you're all agog to have a share in the land. You know, so he's, he's really a bit puzzled because the timing is so wrong, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> it's so wrong. They're going against the flood. They're going against the tide. Is that the expression? Yes. Um, and they answer simply, we know that in the end, all Israel will come to have a share in the land and will want a share in the land. We know, you know, we have a sense of history. We know that, all right, now it may be fashionable to run away from the land, but the time will come when we'll be proved in fashion. We'll, we, will, we will come into the fashion at some future time. And that's a kind of calm, placating answer, a modest answer, in a way to cover up the fact that they are quite extraordinary. And Moshe is, is wondering at it. How, where, where do you get this, this gourmet taste for, for Eretz Israel when everyone else is... Um, and then there's a quotation here, follow on on what the women say. It's a time to act for God. It. It's a moment. It's a crisis. It's a time to act for God because they are breaking your Torah. And the way that it's usually understood, right, the basic meaning of that is everyone is off. So it's a time, heroically, to come and seize the bull by the horns. I'm mixing all my metaphors. And, and, and to say the right thing. To say the thing that, that is a, a different sensibility, that expresses a different sensibility. Um, and so that's Eitla. But as you may know, um, that very famous statement of the sages is used to mean almost the reverse. It's a daring statement. Yeah? It, when, it's, when it's a time to act for God, you may even act transgressively. You may go against the stream. You may go against what seems to be right in the general view of things. That is, there is there's, a, there's such a thing as a time to act for God in which the limits get loosened a little bit. And that too is, is the, that meaning also is held in this. As if the women are really here going against some kind of consensus, and it's not so clear what, what's right at this moment, but they're very, very strong about it. And then, uh, I think it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it didn't uh, get onto your page here, Now I think this is really rather funny. Um, at a time or a place I don't, uh, where there is no man, meaning a gever, meaning someone who's got strength and, and gvura and courage, try to be a man. And of course, Ghazal know very well that they're talking about women here. And I don't think particular. I don't think they mean it to be humorous. You know, I think what they mean is simply gever is in a way ungendered. Here it's ungendered. It just means gvura. It means a certain kind of the courage of the moment, not not kind of long term courage, but the courage to know how to react in an unpopular way, and there, and to and to and to gain your point. Uh, something like that is not purely intelligence. It's courage. It's also, something else. It's a kind of creativity, I want to say. That there's something extremely creative in what, what is going on here. But what about this problem of the spies? We have to, we have to sort that out. 
Midrash says that they make their claim just when everyone else is saying, let's go back to Egypt. And it turns out that it's 38 years later. Yeah, we are now after, at the end. So I would suggest that the Midrash is suggesting <laughs> that that is the mood of the people all the way through the Midbar, simply. That's the Midbar mood, and it hasn't changed all that much. I know there are people who go to great lengths to argue, text-based, that really they've changed a great deal by the end of the 40 years. I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. Because what they say at the end, it's not exactly the same at the beginning, but it's rather similar. It's not, not totally different either. So you can't call it a transformation. So they're, they're against the stream. These women are now speaking against a kind of, and it's not a matter of opinion. You know it is. <coughs> you can't even dignify it with the word opinion. It's a sensibility. That's the way it is in the people, that people want to go back to Egypt. They find it very hard to move forward. And, and here are these women effortlessly you know, and enthusiastically uh, arguing for their place in, in Eretz Israel. And that is, right, I doesn't say it's their chokhmah. It doesn't tell us what quality that represents. Is that, is that sidkaniyut? Is, is, is that what, uh, what, what this represents? Or has it something to do with darshaniyot? With the fact that they know how to interpret what seems to be clearly given, the facts of the matter, are not facts because they are simply material for interpretation. And the women know how to do that. And that's what they are complimented for by God, Ken. So I want to help, to help us now to make rather lavish use of a very famous and beautiful essay by Emerson called Self-Reliance. Emerson, in this essay, talks about, similarly, he talks about the, the moment, right? it's a moment, it's a moment in which someone has the opportunity, if they will seize it, to create themselves, to move from a situation of being uncreated, which for Emerson is where we all start, Uncreated means having yet not yet decided who I want to be in the world, how I want to be in the world. So kind of you know swimming one's way around and among the currents of, of things, and not emerging and taking a stand. How does one create oneself in a particular instant? He says there's a particular instant in which which is a transient moment, right, which expresses human transience. You know, that everything important happens. You know, it's, you have one moment, and, that, and, that, and that's what, what you have. And in that moment, one may stand up and say, in his language, I am. Which doesn't mean, of course, you need literally to say the words, I am. But it means to lay a claim on existence. To be or not to be. That is the question. You know? Whether it is better in the mind, yeah, there's one way of doing it, and then there's another way of doing it. One is just to kind of float around, and the other is to take a stand. Let me read you a sentence from, from Emerson. Emerson says, we're talking here about particular historical moments um, in which one can move from uncreatedness into becoming the author of oneself. And here is the sentence from Emerson. Man is timid and apologetic. He is no longer upright. He dares not say, I think I am, but quotes some saint or sage. 
Now, I feel I'm in a sensitive position here um, <laughs> because, because I, I keep on quoting saints and sages. Uh, and I'm very inspired by them, I have to say. That is not for nothing. But, um, is there a way, perhaps, of quoting saints and sages and saying I am? Nevertheless, I don't know. But you can see what he's saying. They dare not say, I, I think I am. Now, what's he referring to, obviously? A previous work of philosophy. You know, one of the classic statements that everyone, everyone knows. Yeah, that's Descartes. Yeah. Um, I think, therefore I am. Sounds very simple. If you actually look up his second meditation, he says it in many different ways. It's not quite as succinct as that. I think, therefore I am. And here, Emerson raises a new question. It's all very well to say, I think, and therefore I am. But what if you dare not say, I think I am? That is the issue, really. Is it possible, perhaps, that you are not yet created? So it's not just a matter that you are created, and, you know, and, and, and uh, I need to say it. No, I, I'm, in this situation what, what, that Emerson is dealing with, I begin to be, to, to be or not, I begin to be, when I speak out and I say, I think I am. It isn't I think I am, right? I think, comma, I am, yes. And, but that, of course, happens through the, the means of what one chooses to say, how one chooses to represent oneself in the world at, the, at that moment. And he regards that, Emerson obviously regards that, as, uh, there's a great, as being very, a lacking, it's a, it's a lost art form in his time, uh, 19th century, late 19th century. Man is timid and apologetic. People are embarrassed. People are full of shame, uh, and so on. And of course, he's talking about a universal. He's not talking only about, about his time. And <coughs> excuse me, Stanley Cavell, <coughs> the American philosopher, who writes a lot about, about Emerson, has a wonderful, very simple sentence. Quote, no one comes is a tragedy for a child. For a grown-up, it means that the time has come to be the one who goes first. And that means, he says, to allow oneself to be known. To allow oneself to be intelligible, Emerson says. To allow oneself to be hurt, no. To allow oneself to be intelligible, even if there's no guarantee that one will be heard. That's, that's what Emerson adds to it. I have to do my best to explain my position, you know, just to be there, to be in that position, la amod, to stand in the field, yep, to stand there, even if I have no guarantee that there's anyone who will be able to take me up. It's another Emerson expression, who will be able to respond to, to what I'm saying. So I may, be, uh, I may be doing myself a great uh, disfavor by doing this, but that's the only way to, to become. To be or not to be, it's a choice, actually, it's a choice, Cavell calls it, it's a choice of natality. Do you decide to be born or not? Right? Being born sounds like a matter of fate, but actually there's a choice that's made. At a certain moment, yeah, one, one needs to decide actually to be in the world. And that uh, argument that Emerson is making and Cavell <coughs> is, 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 is putting out into the world, means on some level that there's a need to learn a certain posture. And so Cavell says there is no knowing when we, can, we learn the posture that will make sense 
of a field of movement, a field of movement, like writing, playing at the keyboard, dancing, passing a ball. He chooses skills that we would call performative skills. How do you learn to play the piano? Right? How does anyone ever learn anything? You sit down and learn it in theory until you really know it, and then you sit down at the keyboard, and you're, no, 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 no. You're playing from the beginning. When is it that you actually learn? When, when do you, how is it actually done? Now, there are certain cases like the ones he, he names here, playing ball, or yeah, yeah. typewriters, uh, turning to computers, or learning, to, learning to, to use a keyboard. That's clear. That's clearly performative. But in a way, I think what Emerson is saying is that everything that's important is performative. It's a very large statement then. What is performative? It's when you say something, not to describe a situation, but to recreate it. You are doing something, you're changing the situation by what you say. For instance, the classic example is Hareyat um, Mekudeshet. Yes? Am I safe to say it? Yes. Hareyat um, Mekudeshet. Um, yeah? Yeah? Or in the English version, how is it? With this ring I thee wed. Yeah? When you say that, you're not describing what you're doing. <coughs> And you're not describing the, 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 the Mekudeshet state of the other person. You're making her Mekudeshet. So the words are actually changing reality. That's called the performative mode. The queen breaks a bottle on the, on the, on the ship and says, I hereby name you uh, Santa Maria. Yes. She's not saying she's naming her. She is saying she's naming her and naming her in doing that. I think I am. Now, the, uh, the, the power of, this, of, of the performative leads us now to very fraught material. Let's go straight from here to number seven on your page. <coughs> this is an, quite a, an extraordinary midrash. It's a midrash that's hard to speak about. Uh, it's so fraught. I'll, I'll read it, paraphrase it very quickly, and you can, uh, you can follow along. They said about Rabbi, Rabbi Elazar ben Dordia that he hadn't left one harlot in the world that he hadn't been with. And he heard of one, about one very, 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 very special one who... Uh, asked for a, a lot of gold, gold coins and he got himself a purse of gold coins and he crossed the rivers and he went to be with her. And when he's with her, at that moment, there is a little physical accident that happens, which I might, you'll have to spare my blushes. It says in your English there that she passed breath or something like that. Wind. Wind. Oh, it does say, oh, that's very, all right, that's very helpful. Uh, okay, so there's a little, a little physical a accident there, which is not most dignified. And, and she says to him, I suppose admiringly, if I know anything in the world, I know that you will never do tshuva, just as this wind is never coming back into the body. You, know? you will never do tshuva. You're, you're, you're beyond change. You're incorrigible. At which point, Rabbi Elazar conceives a great desire to do tshuva. And he is, he, he, he's so passionate about it. He asks the, the sun and the moon and the sky and the heavens and the earth and the mountains and the, and, and the hills in several different episodes. Yeah? He asks them to pray for him, to help me, save me, 
Help, help me do tshuva. And they all answer, we have enough trouble asking for ourselves that we are all headed for destruction. You're headed for destruction. We, are we can't help you. And finally, he puts his head between his knees in the fetal position. And he groans like an animal, ga'ah. He groans and he says, I see it all depends on me. And as he groans, his soul leaves him. He, gro he groans, there's such a deeply felt groan of, of, of penitence that he, his soul leaves the world. And a heavenly voice comes out and says, welcome, Rabbi Elazar ben Turdea, into the life of the world to come. You've made it. When Rabbi hears this, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who represents rabbinical, rabbinical wisdom, rabbinical tradition, the, the uh, collator of the Mishnah, when he hears this, he weeps. And he says, Yesh kone olamo b'sha'achat, ve'yesh kone olamo shanim. There are those who acquire their world. What does that mean? Kone olamo. In one moment. And there are those who acquire their world over the course of many years. And you can understand why Rabbi is crying. Because it's clear what he prefers. That what he prefers is the over many years idea. Where one gradually through discipline and through habit, determination, one creates a self for oneself. Let's say one creates oneself through a long, slow, sure, disciplined process. But he has to admit that it's also possible that one can, in Emersonian style, do it in one historical moment. That in one moment of deeply felt emotion, one goes all the way. And not only that, Rabbi adds, adds at the end, and you can feel it really goes against the grain. Not only that, but Baalei Tshuva, penitents when they come into the other world, they're also called Rabbi. In other words, they can earn the same honorific that I've spent so many years earning. <coughs> they can do it in one fell swoop. And there's something about this that goes against the grain. Now, I put that on, on, on the table now. And having said that, I want to take a little, make a little digression um, and look at, go back to the idea of Rashi's outburst about the happiness of someone, Ashrei Misha Kadosh Baruch the happiness of someone, the felicity, the, you know, happiness, Ashrei, the happiness of someone to whose words God assents. Go, go back to that. That as, as a state of happiness. Oh, the happiness of it. Ashrei, it's that kind of statement. That's happiness. What's the happiness we're talking about here? Ashrei means, the word, the Aleph Shinresh, means to, to be credited, yeah? to, have, to have good credit, Ashrei, in, in modern Hebrew. It means to be on firm ground. It means steps, yeah? Ashurai, my steps on the ground. It means to be in a firm, well-established, secure place. How solid a person must feel with whose words God has agreed, God has assented. Which is a way of saying, first of all, that the daughters of Slavchad must really feel very happy here. But it's, of course, a larger statement. Who knows, after all, whether God has agreed with one's words? This is the one case where God actually comes out and says, Ken. So they're happy, but to whom else does it apply? Who else has the privilege of knowing that I've said something and God is with me in what, in what I've said? 
I mean, the answer would have to be no one in that explicit concrete sense. And yet Rashi is saying something, and his source uh, is saying something here, that there is such an experience in the world of ashray, of feeling that you are on totally solid ground, that you are authorized, that you are authorized. I want to call it an experience of felicity, an experience of things working just right. That I am, in, I am in a felicitous place. I've done something felicitous. means harmonious, fitting somehow, the perfect thing. And somehow that has happened at this moment, and I'm well grounded. What, what, what bliss that must be, Rashi says, perhaps uh, uh, from his own experience. Have a look on your page at, um, yes, number 6A and B. I'm going back. God says to to uh, Moshe, just before this, shortly before this, kach et Aaron, take Aaron and take him to the top of the mountain where he will die. What does it mean to take someone? How do you take a person? Words. Right? You can't take a person by main force. That's not taking. To take is with words, always, including marriage. Yes. Um, so, kachenu bidvarim, Take him with words. How are you going to get him to go to die at the top of the mountain? Take him with words of consolation. What should you say to him? Ashrecha. Happy are you that you will see your crown handed on to your son, which I, Moshe, will not, be, will not merit. In other words, Moshe is told to choose the right words to speak to Aaron, to transform his situation. That it won't be simply that he's going to his death, but it will be in a way reshaping the event in which he will know that his son, his son is also there in the cave, and he puts his vestments onto his son. So there is that sense of at least of there of being a future. And that is a sense of ashray, and that's a sense of kin, of being in a solid place. Kin and ashurai belong to the same field of, uh, of reference. Uh, the other source is very also right here, immediately after this, God tells Moshe, take Yoshua. How do you take Yoshua? Take him with words. Ashrecha, happy are you that you have merited to lead the children of God. Now, it could be that Yoshua is not feeling at all happy at this point, because he's being left with the rather troublesome burden of this not easy people. And Moshe is leaving him. I mean, there's no joke at all. But you say to him words that will transform the situation. Ashrecha. <coughs> Happy are you. Do you know who they are? They are the children of God. Now, one can say that a little tongue-in-cheek sometimes. You know, sometimes we, we dress up difficult situations. But there's a great seriousness to this as well. We're talking about performative speech. We're talking about the way in which language can actually change the situation. It's not just a description of the situation. It's act, mi kamocha, what is ashrecha Yisrael, Moshe's last words to the people. He does it to the whole people in the end. You know, it's as if he's, he, he understood by the end what to do. And this is the man who couldn't speak, if you, if you remember. One, it's one of the ironies of what happens to Moshe, that in the end, he has to, in a way, move out of the world with words, with words that will make it possible for the world to continue. 
And so he says to the people, Asherecha Yisrael, <coughs> excuse me, happy are you, O Israel, Mikamocha am noshaba Hashem, who is like you, a people saved by God. In other words, you have God himself on your side. All right, you're losing me. And that might seem to you a little catastrophic at this moment. But, Ashrecha. Kamu vaneha vaya ashruha. Yeah, the end of Eshet Chayo. Her children rise up and declare her happy. That's how we translate it in a common sense way. They say, happy are you, basically. Yeah. Uh, what, what we're really saying is they're making her happy. <laughs> you know, they're not happy, but they're giving her that ashray feeling by using the word and applying it to her. So it's a very powerful word in which different associations, un unconscious associations perhaps, are being called on to change the nature of the event. And that is something that Moshe is cultivating here at this, at this last moment, this gift. I'll just say as a kind of tragic aside, that Paul Celan, the um, great poet of the Holocaust, has one poem towards the end of his life. He began to use, to use occasional Hebrew words in his German poetry. And he has one called Ashrei. He has a, a highly ironic and bitter poem in which basically he uses the word Ashrei. He writes it out in, in English letters, in German letters. Yeah. Uh, and so therefore, it's a word that the German audience will not be able to understand. They will, they will be at a loss, as the Jews have been at a loss in so many situations. And he uses a word, he says, it's a word without a meaning. How can we possibly now use the word ashray? There is nowhere to turn for happy meanings, for meanings that should build the future. And he speaks now in the darth of the way the word functioned in the past. It's an unknown word. There's no community who now are capable of saying the famous ashray, yeah, ashray, ashray, vetacha, and all the ashrays of Tehillim, you know, how many of the Tehillim, you know, begin with the word ashray. These are all reframings and they are lost, says Salan, <coughs> to us now. And so he grimly intones it. At the same time, John Felstener, who is his one of his translators and has put out the book, I think, for those who want to read Salan, who want to understand Salan, a biography, a literary biography, uh, John Felstener says, nevertheless, by using the word, he's again creating the community. Suddenly, there is a community of those whose memories are being stirred, and there is the beginning again of that paradoxical function of the word ashray, where you take a situation of loss and mourning, and you somehow transform it. And now I come back to Rabbi Elazar ben Dudia. Um, and the Svatimet. And I'm keeping my eye on the time. Um, number eight, the Svatimet. 19th century Hasidic master. Quotes from what Rabbi says in the Midrash that we read just now. Yesh kone olamo There are those who acquire their world, his world, one's world, in one hour, in one moment. And he quotes from the Talmud. Every person has a world of his own. Olam atzmo. So what are you acquiring? It's very like Emerson, or maybe Emerson is like what the rabbis have to say. Emerson did actually know some rabbinic literature. That the world that you are acquiring, the world that you are authoring, the world that you are actually creating yourself as, 
is an individual one that has to do only with you. In other words, everyone has their own. Everyone has to do their own. And then he goes on to quote his father, who says a very extraordinary statement here. She, he, he quotes his grandfather, actually. That the world, olam, is named for obscurity, hiddenness, for that which you don't understand. What is the olam that you have to acquire? It's the olam, it's the world that you don't, you don't feel you can conquer, that it's not just there for the taking. It's something you are puzzled about, you're baffled, you don't know what to do about it, and it requires of you a certain resistance, hitnakdut, he says, to stand your ground, to stand your ground in the face of mystery, he'alim, in the, in the face of mystery. And then he ends up with a generalization. He says that is, uh, it's not so often he writes this kind of thing. He says, um, These are the battles of the human being, all his days, all one's days in this world. What are the battles? These are individual battles. These are individual battles of facing he'alim, something that one can't, when, 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 in a sense, can't, can't see one's way through. And we have then that idea of the historic moment, of, the mo of, a, of a moment in which one faces something that one doesn't, that intelligence won't help one with. Right? Intelligence is, you know, it's a good start, but that one needs some other quality. And we still haven't got to darshaniyot. So let's get to darshaniyot now. Maybe that's what's needed. That what's needed is an ability to take a given reality and lidrosh. And lidrosh is, it's a certain kind of play. It means, in a way, stumbling around. A wonderful statement in the Talmud, in Gitin, Mem Gimel, that says, Ein adam omed al divrei Torah, ela im nichshal bahem. A person doesn't get to stand solidly, yeah, ashrei. Doesn't get to stand solidly on the words of Torah, to understand the words of Torah, unless one has stumbled over them. That, now, this is, uh, it's, uh, it's one of my favorite, is not the word, but one of my things that I think about a great deal. Rabbi Tzadok Cohen makes it the, the linchpin of, his, of a much, much of his thought. Now, there is a paradox there, that somewhere in order really to create something, one has to lose sight of the obvious solid ground. In some way, one has to fall and then try to find an alternative ground to create the alternative ground. Um, there's a wonderful book by Shoshana Feldman in which she talks about this, this question of performative language, uh, and she quotes a number of people. Let me just quote um, Kierkegaard here, maybe. Um, so let's leave Kierkegaard out of it. Um, I'll, I'll take another, another point here. Um, the the capacity to do this, to say the felicitous thing, to say the happy thing, not in terms of happy, happy, but just the right thing, the thing that is transformative. The capacity to do that is accompanied also by a capacity for misfire. If there were no risks involved in it, then it wouldn't be very creative. Then you'd just be playing safe. But if there's a risk, if you say it in the wrong situation, if you say the right words in the wrong situation, 
right? You say Hare Atma Kodeshit to someone that you can't marry, for instance. Then it falls flat on, on, on its face. There, there, whenever you try to do this, you're in danger of stumbling and falling. But there's also the possibility that you will manage to stand, stand better afterwards. And that sense of the inherent, that it's an inherent in human nature, to fiasco is somewhere inherent in human nature. I'll put it like that. That is trying and failing. Right? To stand there and you're a giver and you, you, you have the courage and you've chosen the moment and somewhere you fail. That's the risk you take. You may not be heard. It may not work. And the ability to do that then is the capacity, and that's the quote from Kierkegaard that I wanted to, to find and I couldn't find, um, my own stumbling. Um, it, that is the possibility, as he says, I keep, he says something like, I keep stumbling around, and that's a relief to me because I understand that my, I still have a poet's existence. I'm still a poet. The fact that I don't go straight <coughs> for the obvious words, the fact that I stutter and stumble and skid as I'm trying to find words, he actually talks about skids, um, that's the sign that I'm a poet. And I want to take that and import it into the last passage from the Svatimet that you have on your page, in which he gives a kind of very broad view of the issue of the Notzlofchad. Why are they happy? Why can they understand the law that Moshe himself cannot understand? What are we talking about here? So, number 11. What we have here, the Svatimet points out that what God then says is he rules that you shall transfer the, the inheritance of their father to them. First God said you shall give them the inheritance of their father, and then it says, you shall transfer. Why transfer? Because the word transfer implies exactly that business of moving things around, of slipperiness, of not having a firm grip on the ground. Why Vahavarta? Because if a woman inherits, that's giving the land to a slippery owner. Because if she marries someone from another tribe, the land, which should be the most solid thing in existence, well, that's there, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, immovable, immovable goods, suddenly becomes very slippery. It no longer belongs to the first tribe, it belongs to the second tribe, and you don't want that. You want things to stay within their limits, ultimately, in some sense. And that's the argument that the cousins of these five women will make just a few chapters later. They come and say, it's all very well that you give, they gave them that right, but they're going to transfer. Through them, there's going to be a, a, an une a, a total shift constantly in the, in the lines and borders and, and meanings of things. So women have that capacity to, in a way, they are habat ma'aberet mishevet leshevet. That's the expression that's used. The daughter transfers from tribe to tribe. You know, put something in her hands and she will transfer, transform, translate. Somewhere that's it. All those words that begin with trans, yeah? Uh, trans transition. All these words which are words of movement, which, of course, can be desirable, that there should be movement and change, and what seemed to mean this now comes to mean that. But there's also something uneasy about it. You have to draw the line somewhere. So what God is bringing up here, in, according to the Svatimet, 
is the changing times. That the daughters of Slavkhad single the end of one age and the beginning of another age. In Moshe's time, Moshe was compared to the sun and Yahshua was compared to the moon. And that's no compliment to, to Yahshua. Because the moon, the worst thing one can say about Yahshua's situation, and all the future history as compared to the Moshe reality, is that Moshe had direct vision, direct access to the sun itself, as it were, to the source of light. Whereas Yahshua and everyone who comes after him, who represents Torah Shabal Peh, the Torah that then has to come from the human mouth and not from the text, the sacred text that's written, written, it has to come from interpretation, it has to come from Lidrosh. Yeah. The weakness of that is that it's derivative, in a sense. That it, it takes its authority from the text. And without a text, you can't really, you can't really say anything. On the other hand, that weakness, if you, read, if you read the passage, you can see that that weakness is counterbalanced by the understanding that what Yahshua represents, being the moon, is what the daughters of Slovchad represent. It's a feminine mode, as it were, in which one interprets, interprets the basic text and takes it far beyond into the situation, the changed situation of later, and takes it into very different territory and takes it into very different formulations. And that's an imaginative and a creative mode as well as a mode of, of high intelligence and of knowing how to do it. You know, simply a, a, a decor, the decorums have to be observed, but essentially it's a transformative mode. And in that sense, the women represent something that Moshe himself can't engage with. And hence the tension, because he represents that primal access to God and to the word of God but he has no capacity to do that transfer thing, you know, that transferring thing. For that, it has to be the women, and the women now are coming, and it's called nukva. It's called, in, in, in Kabbalistic terms, that is what a woman does. She has ibur, you know, that's also another pregnancy, which is also a time of transformations, it's also an in-between time of transformations. And she exists then, these, these women now, stand for the beginning of Torah Shabbat. The women are darshaniyot in themselves, and they stand now as the, the, uh, the forebears and, and the conceptual origin of the idea of Torah Shabbat. Now that's not just a compliment. You know, that's a kind of historical analysis of a certain kind. It's a way of saying that what B'not Slavchad are doing here, they're creating a kind of revolution, which Moshe himself has to have mixed feelings about. Come back to the personal attention. And then if we go back to that Midrash that we read sarcastically before, and we realize he quotes it again, Svatimet, and he, as a modernist perhaps, uh, takes it very seriously. The law, God says to Moshe, that you don't know, the women know it. Not sarcastic in his reading. It's not mere women, it's simply you stand for this and they stand for that. And you are something that can't be forever. Right? It, it's there at the beginning stage. That's how things begin. But the creativity of the people 
is what will emerge afterwards. And so Moshe is now, in a way, facing his own mystery, it seems to me. You know, there is a, this is Moshe's moment, in a sense, of creating himself. Because at this moment, he has to face a kind of bitter truth, that what he stands for is destined to pass into the hands of these women. The women in the largest sense, in the sense of what they will represent in the intellectual history of, of, of the Jewish people. And that it's a whole sensibility. It's, it's, it's not, we're not talking only about inter intellectual things. Uh, and so Moshe here is facing something that's obscure to him, as this what he met earlier said. And perhaps that's his moment of all his life, you know, I'm just suggesting, that perhaps that's his Sha'a. He gains his world in this moment as he yields, as he yields his world. Benot Slofred, on the other hand, emerge without tremendous fanfare. You know? The law is changed, and then later it's modified again, so it does get whittled down a little bit. But I think the greatness of the moment is a different kind of feminist gain. It's not a gain in legal terms. It's a gain in terms of the movement of time, the movement of history, and the ability to understand and to recreate the moment to move from loss and mourning the slippage of things, and to find a different kind of security, a different kind of eternity um, for the world, for, for the time in front of them. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. Pardes Live in miniseries featuring Dr. Aviva Zornberg is presented by the Sydney and Miriam Brettler Memorial Series 5780, Women in the Wilderness, Four Narratives of Spiritual Power. For more digital content, please visit elmod.pardes.org.